Good morning again. Welcome to H2O. And uh, it is great to be together on Easter. My name is Brian Wiles. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting for this Easter Sunday, it is so great to have you here with us. And, and we know it's a big deal that you would trust us with your Easter because it's an important day for many of us as we get together with family and friends and celebrate. And so it's really good to be together. And we are excited to worship and to celebrate all that God has done. And in light of that, uh, we've been talking and we've been in this series where we've been talking about the miracle that God has performed throughout history and specifically the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the miracles that Jesus has performed and the series that we've been in is kind of leading up to today the culmination of our miracles series where we are looking at the most amazing miracle that has ever been performed where Jesus has literally defeated death and risen from the grave and that's what Easter is all about and, and so we are so excited to be together and celebrate today but I don't know about you but sometimes Easter you you know, it's something that comes up every year, and it's hard to kind of even wrap our minds around the emotions. It's hard to probably even wrap our minds around the reality of what happened on that very first Easter some 2,000 years ago. And, and even as I was preparing this week and trying to, to get my mind wrapped around it, uh, I, I read this story that, that kind of resonated with me a little bit uh, of some of the emotions that might have been involved in that very first Easter. The story that I read actually happened about 20 years ago, and it revolves around around a woman by the name of Ruth Dillow. Ruth Dillow had a son named Clayton, and Clayton was in the army. And it was in the 90s when Desert Storm, the first Desert Storm happened. And so Clayton got sent over to the Middle East to be part of the first Gulf War. And you can only imagine, you know, as a mother, as somebody who maybe some of us have experienced this, who's had to actually send a family member off to war, you can only kind of imagine the emotions that probably grip you during that time, the amount of time that you pray, the amount of time that you think about your loved one who's overseas, putting themselves in harm's way for our country. And so Ruth obviously was extremely, you know, prayerful. She was extremely nervous. She was extremely anxious about sending her son Clayton uh, over to the Middle East. And, and sadly, one day, Ruth got notification from the Pentagon, and she got that letter that no mother ever wants to receive. She got this, this letter that said her son Clayton Carpenter, private first class, had stepped on a landmine and was killed and was dead. And uh, she wrote, I can't begin to describe my grief and my shock. It was almost more than I could bear. She said, for three days I wept. For three days I expressed anger and loss. For three days people tried to comfort me, but to no avail. My loss was too great. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I've heard from, from people who have lost, you know, uh, especially children, and, and there's, there's nothing like that type of grief. And she talked about just how amazing the grief was during that time. And, and then something crazy happened. Maybe you've heard of a story like this, but something crazy happened. Three days later, uh, Ruth got a phone call in the middle of making these preparations for her son's funeral. Ruth got a phone call, and on the other end of the line, the voice said, Mom. It's me. I'm alive. And she was like, wait a minute. No, no, no. This can, somebody, you know, this would be the cruelest joke that anybody could ever could play, you know. What in the world is going on? She received a letter saying that her son was dead. And, and her son, Clayton, said, Ruth, Mom, no, it, it, it's me. I'm alive. There was a mistake. They sent the letter to the wrong person. And, and, and I'm actually alive. 
I'm not actually dead. I'm actually alive. And, and Ruth just describes this experience. You know, again, just imagine the relief. She said, at first I couldn't believe it, but then I recognized his voice, and he really was alive. She said the message had just been a mistake. My son, who I thought was dead, is alive. It was like he was resurrected. She said, I laughed. I cried. I felt like turning cartwheels because my son, whom I thought was dead, was really alive. I'm sure you can't even begin to imagine how I felt. And as I read that story, you know, I thought, you know, what just a crazy, bizarre experience that this family must have went through. But I thought, maybe that story just gives us a little bit of a picture of the emotions that went into that very first Easter some 2,000 years ago in the same part of the world that took place. Because uh, reality is, what happened 2,000 years ago was this crazy emotional roller coaster. If you were with us last week, we talked about Palm Sunday. So just one week before Jesus was crucified, and killed, uh, so many people in Jerusalem were bowing down to him and worshiping him. And, and everyone was saying, save us, Jesus. You are the, the rightful king of the Jews. And so people were, were, were so excited. And it was like, especially the disciples, you had to imagine them just being on the top uh, of the world. You had to imagine them being in like the most spectacular place when it came to their lives, when it came to their careers. And yet how quickly and the difference a few days can make. Because that was Sunday, and then on Thursday, Jesus and his disciples were, were sitting in a room. They call it the upper room. They were eating together. And during that time, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And, and they, they take communion together, which, which we now celebrate. And Jesus says that, that, that it's you, Judas. And, and the, the disciples are like, no, there's no possible way this, this could actually happen. But Jesus and a few of his other disciples go out and pray in this Garden of Gethsemane. And all of a sudden, things start to unravel. Before long, uh, the, the, the Romans come and, and, and they capture Jesus and they take him prisoner. And they take him and they put him on this fake trial. If you know the story of Easter, they put this, this bogus trial together and they declare that Jesus is guilty. The only perfect man to ever walk on the face of the earth, they declare that he's guilty. And so they sentence him to death. And Friday comes. Good Friday. We can call it good now because we know the end of the story. But if you were with us, we had a Good Friday service where we, where we remembered what the crucifixion was all about, how Jesus was tortured, beaten, and killed on that cross. And Saturday comes. I, I, was, I was reading this week about how, how some people are calling it Holy Saturday because you can only imagine just the, the, the despair. You can imagine just like Ruth, who we read about, she was so confused, she was inconsolable. You had to imagine that the disciples felt the same way on that Saturday. But then Sunday came. And that's what we're celebrating today because when, when some of the women went to Jesus' tomb to do these ceremonies that they oftentimes would do during those times, they found the tomb empty. You know, and there's, a, there's like these strips of linen and the, and the tomb is empty and, and at first they can't believe it and so they go and tell some of the other disciples and what do the disciples say? Typical men, right? They're like, oh, you women, you don't know what you're talking about. No possible way. Jesus couldn't be alive. We saw him killed. We saw him put in that tomb. We saw the stone rolled on top of it. You don't come out from the grave. It was over with. And yet, person by person, Jesus appeared to each one of them as well. And they had to kind of eat their words, but they were happy to because their Savior, the man who they'd given their life for, he was real. He was actually the person that he said that he was. And he rose from the dead, defeating 
the grave and defeating death. And it changed the course of history. And that's why we're here today to celebrate. See, this is the story of Easter that we're here and, and, and that we're singing songs about and that we're worshiping to. And, and this, this account of the resurrection, as we're here on Easter, uh, it begs us to ask these two really important questions. And, and I think all of humanity needs to ask these two really important questions about the resurrection story. We need to ask first, did it actually happen? Did, did this resurrection actually happen? And second, if it did, then what does it mean for us today? If the resurrection is real, if Easter is real, then what does it mean for us today? And that's what we're going to unpack together today on this Easter Sunday. You see, the big idea that, that I want to share and I want to unpack together throughout the, the course of this message is that the resurrection changes everything. You can pull out your handouts. You should have notes in our H2O app if you want to follow along on that. Or, or you can just write throughout your, your Bibles or your notes. But the big idea is this. The resurrection literally changes everything. And so today we're going to look at a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've been with H2O throughout this year, we've been working through the the book of 1 Corinthians this whole year. And today on Easter, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter, 58 verses, is dedicated to talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So we're not going to be able to hit all 58 verses, but you can know that when you're, when you're questioning and when you're saying, I, I want to learn or I want to read about the resurrection, you can go to this chapter because it's one of the most important chapters written in the Bible, and it tells us all about the resurrection of Jesus and what its implications for us are. So you can open up there on this Easter Sunday as we read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. We're going to stop there. We're going to stop three times throughout this, this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and, and we're going to pull out from it what God may have for us. And the first point is this. There's nothing more important than the resurrection. There is nothing more important than the resurrection. That's a pretty big statement, but I, I truly believe it. See, I want you to think about this. If you go to church, if you're somebody who, who says that you believe in Christianity or believe in the Bible, then this is what we believe here at H2O. That, that all scriptures, the whole Bible, all scriptures are equally true. Okay, so the whole Bible, every last word, every last page, every last letter, all scriptures are equally true. And all scripture is important. The whole Bible is important. God didn't put it together on accident. The whole Bible is important. But not all Scripture is equally important. All of it is equally true, but it's not all equally important. And we know this because Paul says this is of first importance. There's so much that is said throughout the the course of of the, the Word of God, which is so important. But this is of primary importance. This is of first importance. And some people have asked, you know, why do Christians make such a big deal out of Easter? You know, maybe you've even asked that, you know, within your own heart or or your own mind. What's so big about Easter? Why do we celebrate so much on this one particular day? And I think that that's a legitimate question to ask. 
But the answer is this. The things that are important, we celebrate. What's important to us, we celebrate. Think about that throughout your life. Think about that, that statement. Think about what you celebrate. It probably reflects what is important to you. I think about birthdays. I'm not, I'm not a big birthday person, but, but my wife is really important to me, right? And so when it comes December 26th, the day after Christmas, it's not the day after Christmas. It's Sarah's birthday, okay? And so our whole family, we put away the, the, the Christmas wrapping paper. You can't wrap a birthday present in Christmas wrapping paper, right? And, and we get a cake, and you don't eat leftover Christmas stuff, you get new birthday stuff. Why? Because my wife is important to me. And our kids, we want to celebrate her because she's our mom and they love her. And so we celebrate what is important to us. And Easter is a reality that we as Christians are celebrating the most important thing. Paul says, of first importance. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian thinker and writer, he says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. There's no middle room, in other words. And so if Christianity, if this is true of Christianity, then it's certainly true of the resurrection because Jesus raising from the dead is like the centerpiece of what we believe. The resurrection, if not real, should lead us to abandon our faith and not be here singing songs to this person who claimed to be God but couldn't even defeat death. But if it is real, it should literally change everything. Paul says it pretty bluntly a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your and my faith. If the resurrection isn't real, what we're doing here is a scam. But if it is real, it changes everything. Later, he says, if the resurrection isn't real, then we should be pitied more than all men. People should look at us and say, oh, that's kind of sad. Those people gather together and sing songs. To, no, that's kind of sad. If it's not real, people should look at us and say, that's a sad waste of life. But if it's real, then the reality is it changes our worldview. It changes our lives, and it allows us to live for something bigger than ourselves, something that will last for eternity. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why it's so important for us. You see, Easter is the most important historical event to have ever taken place. Easter is the most important miracle that God has ever performed, and Easter is still changing lives to this very day. It's of first importance. Let's jump back in. First Corinthians 15. Verse 5, it says this. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. Paul's talking here. Last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally Born. And we're going to stop right there because I think what Paul is trying to tell us is that the resurrection is a real event. So the resurrection is important, but the resurrection is a real event. If you're honest with yourself and like the deep heart of hearts, I know that there's many of us here that come from many different perspectives and backgrounds. But if you're really honest with yourself, have you ever asked the question, is the resurrection a real thing or not? And maybe you're here and maybe you might even be kind of asking that on varying levels with varying intensities 
today as we sit here. And so you might be sitting here in the pews of a church saying, is the resurrection a real thing? And you might be thinking, am I going to get struck down with lightning? You know, is that like a sacrilegious thought to sit in church on Easter and ask that question, is the resurrection real? I want you to know that if you've ever asked that question before, you're actually in good company. Okay? That's not a bad question to ask. We talked about this throughout the miracle series, that we need to be honest with asking real questions. And so you're in good company because the disciples asked that question. You know, they, in fact, they, they actually were wrong. They told some of the women that they, they were just being over-emotional and were just seeing things. And then they had to eat their words again. They asked that question. Throughout history, people have asked the question, is the resurrection a real event? And it's an important question that we must wrestle with. We have to. And so Paul gives us some proof here. And I think I want to unpack this, this section just a little bit because I don't know about you, but for me, I like having some evidence in the things that I actually believe in, especially if I'm going to stake my whole life on it. If I'm going to stake what I give everything to, I want to know that it's real. So Paul says this. He says, I want to give you two pieces of evidence uh, about the resurrection being, being, being real. And the first thing he says is there are eyewitnesses. Okay, did you catch that? He says he appeared to 12, and then he appeared to over 500. He says there are eyewitnesses. Now, eyewitness evidence is an extremely important thing, right? You don't have to be a lawyer to know this. I like to watch a lot of Judge Judy, actually, so I kind of consider myself an expert in some of the laws. But, uh, but, but you don't have to watch a lot of Judge Judy to know that, that eyewitness evidence, it's a pretty important thing. And, and Paul says, and, and this is when, when people who had seen Jesus would have still been alive. Okay, Paul says, Jesus didn't appear to just one person. He didn't just appear to two people or three people. He says, Jesus has appeared to over 500 people. Think about that. If you were building a court case, and I was standing up here and I said, hey, 500 people saw this thing happen, whatever that thing is. 500 people saw this happen, and you can literally go ask them because he says some of them still are alive, although some of them have died. This is probably around 70 A.D., 60, 70 A.D. that he's writing this letter, okay, about 30 years after Jesus had rose from the dead. You can go talk to Bob down the street. He saw Jesus alive. You can ask these eyewitnesses. And they saw him alive. That's pretty powerful evidence, isn't it? I mean, when you think about that, if you're building a a case, and some people say, well, okay, but there's crazy things that happen. Maybe they were like hallucinating, you know. Maybe they just really wanted to believe it so bad in their hearts that they just just made it up. But but the reality is that is impossible because maybe one or two people could have hallucinated and just wanted to see that and trick themselves. But 500 people, nothing like that has ever been recorded. People that saw him sitting down and standing up and walking and eating and seeing him from a distance and seeing him close up and touching the nail scars in his hands. There's no possible way that it could have been a mass hallucination. 500 eyewitness evidence. And that leads us to the second thing that Paul talks about here. And I think the strongest piece of evidence that we have to think about on this Easter day. Think about this. The disciples' lives were radically changed. The the disciples' lives, all 500 of these people, their lives were radically changed. If you saw somebody raised from the dead, it would probably drastically change the way that you live the rest of your life, wouldn't it? And that's exactly what happened to these 500 people. Their lives were completely changed and they were never the same after seeing this risen Jesus. 
Now, again, some people said, well, well maybe, maybe they just were lying. You know, people lie. You know, maybe they were just making it up. And that's a decent argument, right? Because, again, all of us have probably lied to some extent. Anybody lied in here? You know, if you don't raise your hand, the old saying is you're probably lying right now. Okay, so we know that, that, that people lie. In fact, I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing. Uh, just a quick side note, I was thinking about when I was in junior high, there was this kid named Steve, and Steve lied about everything. And so uh, we, we actually just changed the word lie to Steve. And so it was like, you know, you would, be, you would be going around, and somebody would say, like, oh, I caught a three-foot fish, you know, when I was fishing this weekend. And they go, sure, Steve, you know. And, and so we interchangeably used that word. Maybe they're telling us Steve, you know. Maybe it's like, maybe these 500 people are just making something up. Is that possible? Is it possible? It could be, but think about this. Why do people lie? I mean, when, when you've lied, and all of us have, hopefully not that often, but, but why do you lie? When you lie, you're trying to get something. When you lie, you're trying to avoid punishment. When you lie, you're trying to get some benefit for yourself. Lying is a selfish thing to do, right? And so the only reason that you lie is to get something for yourself, right? To try to avoid some suffering, to try to avoid some pain, to try to move yourself a little bit further, a little bit further ahead, to make your life more comfortable. But no one ever intentionally lied to bring pain and suffering and death into their life, have they? You don't lie to, to, to bring some form of punishment on yourself. And see, the reality is the disciples, if they were lying and making up this story, then they were simply gluttons for punishment because all 12 of the disciples, 11 of the 12 of the disciples were actually killed for this potential lie that they were telling. 11 of the 12 disciples, it's not like they got any benefit from it. It's not like they got any more money from it. It's not like they got any more fame from it. What they got was torture. What they got was crucifixion, some of them. What they got was a life on the run. And the only disciple that wasn't killed was John, who was sent to an isolated island to live by himself for the last few years of his life. If they lied, they were choosing a terrible thing to lie about because it only brought death and destruction into their lives. See, this ragtag group of people, they would go on to scatter. This ragtag group of people who on Friday were disillusioned and and had no clue what they were doing in their life and they just hunkered down in a room and and they were scared and they didn't know what was going on. This ragtag group of people who saw Jesus with their own eyes on that Sunday, this Easter Sunday that we celebrate would change dramatically and would go on to travel thousands of miles by foot to tell this amazing story of redemption of this God that they serve, Jesus, who is actually alive and defeated death. That's pretty compelling to me. Lloyd Oglivia, he's a, a pastor and author, he says this, the most powerful historical proof of the resurrection is the resurrected disciples. Dull, defeated People becoming fearless, adventuresome leaders. Cowards became courageous, and the timid became bold. See, it's not bad to ask the question, is the resurrection real? That's a great question to ask. And no matter how you're answering it, we're glad that you're here with us today. And some people have said, well, well the burden of proof is, is completely on, on Christianity. 
right? You know, when you think about a court of law, it's like, who has the burden of proof? Some people say, well, if you're claiming that Jesus raised from the dead, the the burden of proof is completely on you. And, And there's some truth to that. I can understand that. We need to have some evidence. But the burden of proof is also on the other side as well. Because think about this. There are billions of people who are claiming to follow Jesus to this day. In this event, you have to do something with it. You can't just ignore it. You have to do something with it. You have to answer the question of how did the world get this way? Because something powerful happened one way or another. Something powerful happened. And so the burden of proof, yes, it's on us. But the burden of proof as well is on a skeptic who says, I just can't believe that. Then you have to answer the question, what happened to those 500 people? It's not just a couple. What happened to them? Because they literally went on to change the world. And it changed one life at a time. And they started proclaiming the gospel. And people started hearing about the hope that comes from serving and accepting Jesus. And life after life after life was changed until we're sitting here today some 2,000 years later. And there's billions of people on this day who are raising their hands and singing to the name of Jesus. That means something. That's a pretty powerful fact of history that we have to wrestle with. Listen, we can have confidence that we are serving a a risen God. And and I mean this with with no disrespect to any other world religion. But when you think about any other world religion, you can go to the place of the grave of where the leader or the founder of that religion lives, and you can look at the grave, and you can know that there are literal bones laying inside the grave of each one of those religious leaders. But when you go to the grave of Jesus, it's empty. There's nothing there. And there's change life after change life to prove that he is still alive. That's what Easter is all about. So let's jump back in and let's close with this. Down towards the end of chapter 15, we're going to jump to verse 53. Because Paul talks a lot about the implications and what it means. And then he closes with this. He says, For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, the third thing that the resurrection teaches us is that the resurrection gives us victory. Resurrection gives us victory. We all love to to win, don't we? I mean, even if you're not that competitive a person, you probably don't like losing. You probably like winning. My, my, my youngest son, Isaac, he's five years old, and uh, I get to coach his soccer you know, team. And if you've ever seen soccer at that age, it's really funny, you know, right? They just, all the little kids just flock to the ball, and they're tripping over each other. And, and so we had our first soccer game this Saturday, just, just yesterday, and uh, we didn't even know it because at that age, you don't know whether you're good or bad, and it really doesn't matter, obviously. Um, but, but we showed up to the game, and it turns out our team is really good. Okay, and so uh, we played four games on Saturday, and uh, we won like every one. I think the closest one was like seven to one.
one. And, uh, and so we're, we're out on the soccer field playing, and, and Isaac is just having the time of his life. He's running up and down the field. And one of the games, you're not supposed to keep score at that age, right? You know, you don't want to deflate some of the kids that are just learning or whatever. And so, but, but they, they always keep score, you know. And so we're like, Isaac's running up and down the field during the middle of one game. He's like, Dad, we're winning five to nothing. And I'm like, hey, that's all right. You know, we don't need to be talking about that right now. He's like, this is so easy, man. We're winning. You know, and he's kind of like getting all confident. It's like Isaac, you know, he knows that there's something cool about winning. We all like winning on some level, even if you're not that competitive. And Easter is a celebration of the fact that there's like this cosmic battle going on. There is a spiritual war going on in the, in the, the heavenly realms of this earth. And if you are following Jesus, then you are on the winning side. There is victory in following Jesus. And that's why Paul can say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? He's taunting death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You have no victory. It's like Isaac running down the field. We're winning, but not, this is easy. You know, Paul is like saying, death, you're nothing to us. Because we serve a God who's defeated you. And the victory is ours. And it's not because of us. It's because of what Jesus has done. See, before his resurrection, think about Jesus, has trans- how, how he's transformed things. Before his resurrection, the cross, it was like this horrible symbol of death. This terrible picture, this, this rough, wood-soaked uh, thing with, with, soaked with human blood. I mean, it, it was like this, this, the Romans had perfected a way to kill people, and it was the cross. It was so brutal that they wouldn't even kill their own citizens that way. The cross was reserved for enemy combatants. The cross was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was so terrible. And yet, now, think about it. What does a cross symbolize? We wear crosses around our necks. We, we hang crosses in, in our houses and in our apartments. It's a thing of beauty. And when the world sees a cross now, we don't think about death, do we? Or if we do, we think about death being defeated because Jesus has given us victory. He's transformed what the cross actually means. And think about death itself. We don't like to talk about death, do we? I, I don't know about you, but, but I, that's not something that is like going to be a topic of conversation at our Easter lunch today, I don't think. Death is something that's hard to wrestle with and hard to talk about. But the reality is with the resurrection of Christ... We don't have to consider death as the end anymore. Without the resurrection of Christ, death is the end. The grave is the final chapter. It's the end of everything. But in the resurrection, Jesus put death to death. And he is victorious over it. And Jesus rose and defeated it. And when he died on that day, it wasn't over. But when he rose from the dead, now we can look at death and we can almost mock it like Paul does. Because we know that in death, that's where real life begins for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And we can rejoice today that beyond death is where we're reunited with God. That beyond death, just as Jesus rose from the the dead and, and lived in this glorified body, someday when he returns a second time, every single one of us will be resurrected as well. And we will live in perfection with God for eternity because we're on the winning side. We're on the victorious side. See, Jesus had victory over death and so can we. Not on our own strength, but when we look to the cross and when we remember the resurrection.
So no matter what's going on in your life right now, in Christ you have victory. Your problems, your circumstances, they may seem kind of big right now, but you're called by a God who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life, and who defeated death, and so no problem is too big, no person is too far gone, no relationship is too far damaged for God to breathe life into it and bring victory. That's what Easter is all about. You know, I'm a big um, sports fan. I, I, I like uh, being, being around sports. I like being part of them. And, and I was thinking about this idea that, that the resurrection brings us victory. And, and, and I was thinking about, you know, being in a, in a football stadium that's just packed full of people or being at any sporting event. And, and when your team scores or does something good, what is just the natural reaction that every single person has? Yes, Right? We, we raise our hands. When you win the end of the game, you say, yes, that's awesome. And you have hundreds of thousands of people in some of these stadiums raising their hands saying, yes, we won. We beat Michigan. Yes, we won. We beat Toledo. Whatever the case is, our natural reaction is to say yes when there's some type of victory that we're celebrating. And so today as we're here, it's Easter, and we call it a celebration because we're not watching a sporting event. We're talking about the most important event that has ever happened, that has changed our world. And so today is a day of celebration. If we're following Jesus, we're on the winning side, and there's victory in him. That's what Easter is all about. So let's pray, and then let's worship God for the victory that he gives us.